Good afternoon, everyone. We will get started. My name is Sean Huddy. I am the Senior Manager of Strategic Partnerships with Sirius. We have with us today Dean Cheng. He is our speaker at our weekly security seminar. I'm going to read a little bit of his bio and tell you a little bit of information about what he's going to be talking about to you today. But I also want to remind everyone of a couple of things. If you have a question, please use the Q&A tab instead of the chat. If it does end up in the chat, we will take care of that, not to worry. But if you are uh, cognizant of it, try to put your questions in the Q&A tab. And then everyone go check out the Sirius website and register for our 24th Annual Security Symposium, the 28th and 29th of next month. They will be in the Stewart Center. All of the information is on our website, so please register and attend. We do have some great keynote speakers and panel discussions happening. So now on to the business at hand. Dean Cheng is a non-resident senior fellow with the Potomac Institute for Policy Studies and a senior advisor with the U.S. Institute of Peace. He recently retired from the Heritage Foundation as a senior research fellow for Chinese political and security affairs. He specializes in Chinese military foreign policy and has written extensively on Chinese military doctrine, technical implications of its space program, and dual use issues associated with China's industrial and scientific infrastructure. He's the author of Cyber Dragon, Inside China's Information Warfare and cyber operations. His title of his talk today is Chinese Views of Information and Future Warfare. It examines Chinese views on the importance of information and the new currency of international power and discusses how the PLA's restructuring supports PLA effort at planning for future informationized local wars. Thank you, Dean, and take it away. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here today. Uh, so um, as uh, the introduction noted, uh, we'll be talking about Chinese views of information and future warfare, but also as important, Chinese views of information writ large. Um, we start with the important uh, recognition that of how China thinks about the world in general. And one of the key concepts here is that of comprehensive national power. Comprehensive national power is a term that actually was first developed by the Japanese. And it was basically saying, look, how do you compare countries as varied as uh, Brazil, uh, China, the United States, uh, Egypt, and Thailand? And the answer is there is no single metric. You can't just go by population size. You can't just go by uh, the size of their military. Uh, instead, you need to look across a range of metrics. So what is part of comprehensive national power? Military power is absolutely part of it because if a country can't defend itself, then it's not much of a great power. But military power by itself is uh, not a, a good stand-in. And in fact, you can spend too much on military power as we saw with the Soviet Union and as important as the People's Republic of China and the Chinese leadership have noted. Uh, Xi Jinping, the current leader of China has said, you know, the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. So, and that was partly because they overspent on military. Uh, so what else matters? Economic power. But again, economic power by itself, not sufficient to make you a great power. Um, it certainly gives you the potential, but you need more than just economic power. And we see this with Japan, who in the 1980s was all set to dominate the world. It was the up and coming power. Its economy was charging forward. And then they sort of petered out. And at no point did they become a great power along the lines of the United States and the Soviet So what else matters? Well, diplomatic respect. Do other countries care what you think? Uh, do you matter in the, in the halls of international negotiations? Um, political unity. Uh, is the country a unified entity physically? is why Taiwan matters, but broadly, politically speaking, which is why the CCP does view democracies as being fundamentally flawed, because we have debate, and more importantly, you know, we celebrate debate. Uh, science and technology, because you want to not simply make other people's t-shirts or washing machines or even computers. You want to write the operating system. You want to create the standards 
for uh, cell phones uh, and networking that other countries use. You certainly don't want to suffer technological sparks. There's even cultural security. Um, when the Chinese look out at the world, remember they are a civilization, a culture that is 5,000 years old. And yet the lingua franca of the world is English, not Chinese. Uh, it is Hollywood, not uh, Shanghai or Beijing that uh, defines so much of global culture. Um, you know, people line up to see Avatar. They didn't line up to see the uh, cartoon about Confucius. Uh, that actually was an issue a few years back when the first Avatar came out. Uh, they actually yanked it from some Chinese theaters uh, and substituted a Chinese-made um, cartoon. So comprehensive national power is how the Chinese view the world. From that, uh, the Chinese also, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, which rules PRC, of course, is still a Marxist-Leninist party. What does that mean in this context? Um, that human endeavor, human activity, is defined by economics. Um, and the state of economics evolves. Uh, we had feudalism that gave way to the industrial age. But the industrial age has now given way to the information age. And that transition from the industrial age to the information age means that the fundamental currency of power, both domestic and international, has now evolved. In the industrial age, what mattered was stuff. How many merchant ships did you produce last year? How many cars did you produce last year? How many tons of bauxite did you smelt last year? How many steel I-beams did you produce? In the information age, it's not that those things don't matter, they do. But more important now is the ability to generate information, to analyze information, to transmit information, and to exploit information more rapidly and more accurately than your competitors. And that in turn influences economic development. It has huge implications for military development. Um, and it helps define your goals in terms of your pieces of comprehensive national power. So in this world, I would suggest that the PRC is pursuing what might be termed informational mercantilism. The PRC, uh, in particular the Chinese Communist Party, wants to access other people's information, but meanwhile wants to deny them access to Chinese information. Uh, this is true on the economic side, this is true on the military side. Um, and whether it's things like Made in China 2025, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, or this concept of dual circulation, which you might have heard about, where again, China has an internal economy that's relatively insulated from the rest of the world while developing technology there, exploiting the economic benefits of a relatively closed market to then move abroad and create exportable goods and services um, is all tied back to information. If information is the currency of power in the information age, establishing information dominance is central, again, to economic, political, and security uh, activities. Information in this context has strategic, operational, and tactical roles. At the strategic level, an important part of uh, PRC activities rests upon political warfare. Political warfare can be thought of as the hardest form of soft power. It is the effort to influence and shape international attitudes and opinions, to influence how information may even be interpreted, um, but at that broad strategic level. Interestingly, for the PRC, political warfare includes what is termed the three warfares, public opinion warfare, psychological warfare, and legal warfare. Public opinion warfare is shaping international and domestic public opinion. It is shaping how the Chinese people view the CCP, view the PRC, it is how other countries view China. Um, is China a friendly country? Is China an unfriendly country? Is there a China threat? Are Chinese activities above board or you know, threatening? Uh, that is part of the global struggle underway 
every minute of every day in every country around the world, from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, there is ongoing current public opinion warfare between China on the one hand and all potential adversaries, in particular the West, um, but also bystander other countries, uh, India, um, Russia, Japan. Um, psychological warfare is influencing uh, both the leadership and the masses of both direct adversaries, but also other countries. Um, it is um, shaped and influenced by economic power, by political measures, by outright military threats in some cases, and in other cases through aid, uh, investment, and the like. Legal warfare is the use of, in particular, laws, uh, treaties, uh, but also law enforcement agencies to help advance political goals. Uh, this is obviously all a very quick discussion of the much deeper elements, uh, you know, without going into the deeper elements of each of those warfares and political warfare writ large. But the point here is that all of this at the end of the day is really the strategic use of information. What is public opinion, but a form of information? What is psychological uh, warfare, psychological operations, but the manipulation of the interpretation of information? And legal warfare is a very specific part of the information domain that you are applying. So that's the strategic element of information. Um, at the operational level, uh, here this is more specifically on the military side, the PLA is working very hard. The People's Liberation Army uh, has been steadily modernizing. And if you go Google the PLA, you can find fun videos and interesting pictures. China has two stealth fighter programs, now has the world's largest Navy, uh, has built aircraft carriers, all that sort of stuff. But from an information perspective, what matters is that the People's Liberation Army, which has not fought a war since 1979, is intent upon being able to establish at the operational level of war within a theater, information dominance. Again, getting information faster, processing it faster, getting it back out to the troops faster, exploiting it faster than your adversary, but also therefore attacking and slowing down enemy forces in terms of information, in terms of their ability to gather and exploit information. Why does this matter? Because as very careful students of other people's wars, what they have found, what the PLA has found is that one, wars today are joint. And by joint, it's not just inter-service, Army, Navy, Navy, Air Force, but multi-domain, land, sea, air, outer space, the electromagnetic domain, and networks. So if you're going to fight a war, it has to be joint. If it's going to be joint, spanning all of these domains, you have to create a common situational picture, common operating picture, common situational awareness, different terms, all the same thing. Everybody needs to know what's going on, which means sharing information, which means that you need to be able to communicate with your forces. You need to be able to see and hear from your sensors. You need to be able to get forces that could span literally millions of cubic kilometers from under the sea to outer space. You need to be able to do all of that and keep the enemy from doing it in turn. So joint operations creates the requirement for free information flow on your side and constraining the adversary's information flow. To this end, the PLA at the end of 2015 uh, underwent a massive, massive reform. Uh, and I won't go into all the various details, suffice to say that it spanned from top to bottom. The Central Military Commission, which runs the Chinese military, was overhauled and reformed. The Chinese uh, military organization went from seven military regions to five war zones or five theater commands, uh, each of which has its own joint campaign command headquarters, which is the wartime command structure. This didn't used to be regularly stood up. Now it is a day-to-day -day, uh, entity, joint entity and the creation of several new services. And one of the most important there is the PLA Strategic Support Force. The PLA Strategic Support Force brought together Chinese electronic warfare forces, network warfare forces, space warfare forces, and even a piece 
of the political warfare forces all into a single service. People sometimes say, you know, authoritarian uh, systems can't innovate. First of all, that's just bad history, okay? Uh, Nazi Germany, about as authoritarian as you get, uh, developed everything from the assault rifle to jet fighters to rockets. But also it's important to recognize that innovation isn't always new technology. Sometimes it can be organizational. And the PLA Strategic Support Force is a good example of a unique new organization. No other military has brought together these disparate elements into a single service. We, for example, have Cyber Command. We don't have a cyber service. We now have a space force as a space service. But that doesn't control our internet activities and certainly doesn't control electronic warfare activities. The Russian uh, Aerospace Force does not control. Um, it has electronic warfare forces. We think it has some network, but that's not their, that's not the main body of those. Uh, the Israelis, the British, the Japanese, again, nobody has created a PLA strategic support force. One of the interesting things about this is the twinning, the, the pairing of network warfare and electronic warfare. And in a very gross, hyper oversimplified sense, electronic warfare here is about the physical side. It is typically jamming radars, radios, uh, the physical emitters, things like that. Network warfare includes, but is not limited to, cyber warfare. And so, but it also can include interfering with software and data. So the Chinese talk about integrated network and electronic warfare is one of the tasks of the PLA Strategic Support Force, because it's basically saying you might attack the enemy's hardware, the radar, radars, radios, et cetera, or you might attack their software, or you might do both, but that this is your job, PLA Strategic Support Force. And in particular, an adversary space system um, which is all about information flow. Uh, if you can interfere with their tracking telemetry and control so that they, you know, the, the radars that are tracking them are being interfered with, or if you interfere with the command uh, and communications networks that allow satellites to turn on and off or look, it's all good. And that's part of the PLA SSF's job. Um, what is the goal? for establishing things like uh, information dominance, a big piece of it is information deterrence. Now, when we talk about things like information deterrence, cyber deterrence, we tend to think about it as how can I keep the adversary from mucking around in our networks? Very much tit for tat. It's like when we talk about space deterrence, we tend to think about how do we keep an adversary from attacking our space systems? When the PLA writes about cyber deterrence or space deterrence, it's very different. They are talking about how can I use activities in the information domain or in the space domain to achieve a broader strategic goal, whether it is keeping the United States from supporting Taiwan or maybe preventing Taiwan from declaring independence or um, uh, preventing uh, the Netherlands from uh, undertaking a complete ban on exports of uh, uh, high, you know, of lithography machines essential for chip making. So information deterrence then is what can I do in the information domain that will influence an adversary? And that is one of the key roles, not just for the PLA Strategic Support Force, but for the CCP writ large, keeping in mind that because of the political structure of the People's Republic of China, the CCP can reach to all parts of the system. So not just the military, not just government agencies and ministries, that's true for every government, but because of the extent of its control, it can manipulate educational institutions, uh, media, you know, the bulk, vast bulk of China's media is state-run. Uh, finance, so loans, corporate investments, especially by state-owned enterprises, but also non-state-owned enterprises. So all of that can help contribute to what the Chinese term information deterrence. 
Within information deterrence, and in particular on the more specifically cyber side, we see, interestingly, an information deterrence ladder in Chinese writings. Uh, and like other deterrence ladders, which somewhat resemble our escalation ladders, uh, those of you who are of an age may remember Herman Kahn and the 44 rungs of escalation in theories of escalation. Uh, what we see is a um, description of a series of escalating activities that the PRC is likely to use in the information domain to try and signal to an adversary, hey, you need to back off. You need to change the way you're doing things. So the first rung is um, demonstrations of network technology experimentation. Uh, so that can be, again, electronic warfare activities. It could be computer network exploitation, um, showing that you are running around in the other side's networks can be quite intimidating. So something to think about when you are reading about how uh, Chinese hackers sometimes are very quick to be found, that you know, some of it is probably sloppy um, uh, tradecraft, but some of it may be quite deliberate to basically say to an adversary, yeah, I'm in your networks. Think about that if, you know, in the future, in time of crisis. How secure do you think your networks are? Um, the next rung up then is uh, displays and demonstrations of capabilities. So the announcement of the PLA strategic support force can be seen as a step on that uh, on that uh, deterrence ladder. Uh, deterrence through network operational exercises. We've seen very large scale PLA exercises uh, within China, sometimes crossing over uh, the Taiwan Strait center line uh, in cooperation with the Russians before the Ukraine um, invasion. All of these got a lot of coverage with from Chinese China's own news media. Again, sending a message. This isn't just some theory this isn't just a workbench. This isn't just some group of hackers out there. We have serious electronic warfare capabilities. We have serious network capabilities, and they are at the disposal of the state. And then in time of real crisis, and so far we've been fortunate not quite getting to that stage, would be actual network operations. And PLA writing suggests, for example, that you might start seeing DDoS attacks uh, or efforts at an information blockade in order to say to an adversary, okay, this is really, you know, it's, it's getting real here, folks. This is about as real as it's going to get. Back off or the next thing that's going to happen is maybe we're going to black out your power grid or your communications networks or your financial networks. Let me show you some of the things I can do that are reversible or plausibly deniable or are simply just not permanent. But I can do this. So take me seriously. Um, we tend to think about the Chinese in terms of what they hack and what they might be doing to us. Uh, if you're a Chinese IT expert, one of the things that they're going to be worried about is what might somebody do to uh, us. And so what's interesting here is that when we look at Chinese writings on information security, they break information security down into four buckets. Uh, and this gives us a sense of how they think about information systems and what to attack, as well as what to defend. The four elements are first off hardware, uh, the physical security of your server farms, the physical security of routers. Uh, that includes supply chains. So how do I know where these chips came from and therefore what might be on those chips? Um, but also key infrastructure, meaning that vital server farms, et cetera, have security. And here we are not just talking about some private security firm with you know, uh, tasers and batons. We are talking about surface air missiles and military security, et cetera, for national infrastructure. Second is software security. And that's distinguished from data security. I think that's very important here. We tend, we tend to sort of elide the two together. For the PRC, one of their great concerns is that their computers, for the vast majority, are operating a foreign operating system. This goes to comprehensive national power. This is an area of weakness for the PRC, um, that their computers are operating somebody else's operating system 
and who knows what might be hidden in the millions of lines of code or could be easily injected into that. And that's separate from the security of the data. So one is your email program, the other is the email itself or your Word document program, your word processing program, and then your actual memo. And then finally, what they term management security, which is the human factor, is everything from insider threats to will somebody just stick a uh, thumb drive into uh, their computer without thinking. Um, so that is also a concern for them. When the Chinese talk about uh, information dominance, then they are thinking about both hardware and software, as we noted in terms of security. Um, one of the things that the uh, being in the information age has meant is it is vital for the PRC to be self-sufficient uh, in terms of, in particular, ICT, information communications technology. Um, so China makes its own computers. Um, Novo is, a, is an example. Uh, it makes its own cell phones and its own 5G network. But one of the great strengths of Huawei, it is soup to nuts. It's servers, routers, it is uh, base stations uh, for the cell towers. It is tablets, computers, and cell phones. So the entire 5G network is can be manufactured in China. Um, and this is part of a broader sustained effort made in China 2025 said, we want to make our own microchips and we want to be get by 2025 independent of the global uh, supply chain if we have to be. Uh, we want to make our own. They're not going to get there, it seems, on microchips, but this is what they are talking about. Uh, increasingly, we have seen China standards 2035 being talked about. Here, it is building off of the recognition 4G was dominated by the United States. We therefore set the global standards. That keeping us out would be hard. Huawei pretty much dominates 5G. Who will dominate 6G? Who will dominate the next generation of computers as chips get smaller and computing becomes more powerful? Um, but again, it's not just ICT. It's not just information. Uh, China Standards 2035 covers everything from consumer goods to uh, merchant shipping to agricultural uh, standards, etc. The idea here is the nation that helps set the standards, one, can't be kept out of markets, and two, can shape other people's markets. And that is a key part, uh, mostly in the hardware world. The PRC does recognize that it information dominance also requires software. And here, as I said earlier, they recognize that this is a huge weakness. Uh, Huawei uh, really brought this home, or more accurate, the Trump administration really brought this home when it banned um, Huawei from the Android market. And that very quickly, undercut uh, the ability of Huawei to operate, certainly in the United States, but around the world. Um, because if your cell phone doesn't have apps, uh, it's a very pretty um, paperweight, but it's not particularly useful. And for the PRC, uh, the Chinese apps uh, are not as numerous. Uh, they are often very buggy. Um, and there's an outstanding security question about whether or not uh, Chinese apps have been tested and whether they have backdoors. Uh, the whole business with TikTok um, demonstrates again how much that the owners have now admitted. Yeah, um, PRC authorities can access that data. So, um, but that's an interesting example of an app that the Chinese did create that is dominant. Uh, let me talk a little bit about some of the um, uh, Cyber act, specifically cyber activities that the Chinese have been doing, um, uh, both offensive and defensive. Uh, let me start with some of them, uh, one of the perhaps larger defensive activities, and that's the Great Firewall of China. The Great Firewall of China exists because there are three portals into the PRC. All internet traffic at this time pretty much has to go through one of these three portals. Um, and the Great Firewall monitors it all. It has a variety of different methods. Um, so uh, IP addresses can be blocked. Uh, attempts to connect to them can be misdirected. Um, but interestingly, the Great Firewall of China can also look down at the packet level and find unacceptable information, references, et cetera, and then 
use that as a base. So it's not just the URL, it's not just the website. It's actually the information within a web page, uh, document attachment, et cetera, that it can look at. And of course, this is an example of AI ML, um, artificial intelligence machine learning. This is not done by people, right? Because there's just sheer, huge amounts of data flowing through all the time. So it's striking that this is something that the Chinese have devoted enormous resources to working on. Is it perfect? Of course not. Does it absolutely keep everything that the, the CCP finds objectionable out? No, but it certainly helps the human elements of the sensor network, both C and S sensor, um, to focus their resources after essentially a first cull um, by the Great Fire. Uh, the CCP has done something pretty unprecedented, which is to mate the Great Firewall of China with what has been termed the Great Cannon, which allowed them, which essentially can redirect internet traffic that is coming through the Great Firewall as a massive DDoS attack. It was first executed against GitHub in 2015. Uh, it was then employed against Hong Kong protesters in 2019. Um, this is a part of the system. Um, it hasn't been used very often, uh, I would suspect, because this is this is not quite an atomic bomb, but it is a certainly a MOAB in terms of you're massively disrupting whatever your target is. You are you are hitting them. I mean, GitHub can handle traffic, and it went down, admittedly, uh, in 2015 for a while because of the application of the Great Cannon. Um, so this is an interesting example of something that the PRC has developed that nobody else ever has uh, to, for the purposes of the state to redirect global traffic, uh, sorry, uh, internet traffic heading towards China. The PRC has also redirected global internet traffic. Uh, here we have the interesting example of BGP border gateway protocol redirection. China Telecom, a state-owned telecom firm, part of the, you know, the ultimate uh, deciders of uh, internet traffic, uh, has 10 points of presence in North America. And they have used these to redirect internet traffic several times to China. Uh, this has been uh, documented by Chris Demchak and Yuval Shabit. Uh, for those who are interested, uh, Demchak, D-E-M-C-H-A-K. It's a very interesting article. Um, basically, we've seen them shunt traffic to China, where presumably it has been downloaded, may not have been broken, especially if it was encrypted, but could be sifted through. Um, and yes, there have been instances of this occurring by accident, but as Demchek and Shavit have laid out, the fact that this has happened repeatedly, the fact that these were of much longer duration than your typical accident, suggests deliberate action. And since then, we have seen the PRC do this to Europe as well, uh, redirecting traffic. Um, the, uh, a very poor analogy would be, imagine that you are flying from Chicago to London, but your luggage was deliberately rerouted to Beijing, where it could be taken off the plane, examined, uh, at least photographed, and then put back together and eventually lands in London as well. Um, that is a remarkable volume, but also a willingness to violate, frankly, norms. Uh, one final example of an interesting uh, PRC cyber activity um, is CloudHopper. Chinese Ministry of State security agents were identified as having hacked Hewlett Packard Enterprises cloud computing uh, and accessed a number of different uh, clients there. And the reason why I bring that up is because cloud computing is often assumed to be one, the way of the future, and two, more secure. Um, but if you can break through the hard shell, um, you can feast on the soft nougaty center of not just one, but potentially a number of targets. Um, more recently, we've heard the Chinese talk a lot about something called intelligenceization. 
Uh, this is not about cyber activities per se. It is, about, however, about the application of the next iteration of information technologies. And the idea here is that the growth of artificial intelligence and machine learning, the growth of um, uh, big data, uh, cloud computing, all of these things in combination plus additive manufacturing is going to create the next transformation, maybe not a revolution, but transformation. And the idea there is that you are going to see um, a growing ability to tailor information. Uh, in an ideal world, you have the best of both worlds of customization and mass production. So you could make 50,000 Lenovo computers, and each one will be a little bit different for the 50,000 people who will eventually be buying it. Um, you could do this with cars. You can do this with legacy industries. You will be able to do this with future industries. You will be able to apply the information that you have collected about people, which in the Chinese system is quite extensive, to produce a tailored life experience, certainly a tailored shopping experience, a tailored consumer experience, but potentially other experiences, which has both positives, much, uh, you know, uh, much more fun life in some ways, and negative consequences, societal control, especially in an authoritarian system. Um, let me conclude then with Xi Jinping. Uh, at the recent 20th Party Congress, he got another five years. Uh, he had already arranged for the um, amendment of the Chinese constitution to allow him uh, to end term limits. So he is both head of state, president of the PRC, and head of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, general secretary of the party, for essentially an undetermined amount of time into the future. The reason why I bring this up in this context is she has been a great beneficiary of the information control within the PRC. He has been a great supporter of these activities. Um, the uh, uh, Cyberspace Administration of China um, has been strengthened under him. Informationization and now intelligenceization are hallmarks of the uh, China dream, the great revival of the Chinese people. So there's no reason to expect any loosening of the information controls. There's no reason to expect any uh, reduction in the interest in information dominance, nor is there any reason to think that China will be any less uh, focused on informational mercantilism going forward. So with that, um, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, I hope uh, I haven't put uh, the audience to sleep um, and uh, I'm happy to take some questions. Not at all, Dean. That was very interesting. So let me go over to the Q&A and currently we don't have questions. That doesn't mean that we still won't. So if you, I have a question though. Mm -hmm. You had, do you recommend that we have TikTok on our phones? So what I would say is one, um, probably should have put a disclaimer up front uh, that I am not a computer programmer. Um, I, I don't write code. Um, what I would say is the following. Um, I would assume that a Chinese program is going to go through what is on your phone. And will probably relay that data back to China. Um, now, you might ask, look, I'm 20 years old. Uh, the worst thing that happened was last Saturday when I got really drunk and um, barfed in the you know, Dean's uh, you know, garden. Please don't tell anyone. Um, what's so bad? Okay, let me ask this. Who are your parents? Is Are they the head of marketing perhaps for a mid-level firm might be interested in doing work in China or competing against a Chinese company? Is your so brother or sister in the military? Um, something they could see completely innocent could end up being detrimental. Right. Because what is on your phone? Well, you probably have a list of contacts. You probably have emails. You probably have all those sorts of things. Now, imagine taking Palantir or some other social networking data and plugging in 
just the people on this Zoom call, what kinds of relationships might I be able to identify with just the data on all of the phones in here? Probably a lot. Yes. Between the professors and the students. And keep in mind that the Chinese, they don't think in 100-year terms because people die usually within 100 years. But they do think in the longer term. So among the people who are part of this phone call, there are probably younger folks who may become leading scientists, leading professors, leading politicians. There are probably some folks here who are already those sorts of people. Being able to track them, being able to figure out relationships, all of that is part of that broader, more comprehensive information collection that is information dominance. So I would be very hesitant to have not just TikTok, but any Chinese program okay. sitting on my phone or computer. I, I find that very interesting. My daughter and I have had the discussion on a number of occasions, and she does have TikTok, and I do not. Mm -hmm. And uh, so um, I'm looking right now. It does not appear that there is any questions, but I am calling for questions. If anybody has something they'd like to say, but while we're waiting, is there any other stuff you want to share with us while we're waiting to see if anybody, we've still got about another seven, eight minutes. Um, I don't know why the Chinese sent balloons over. Um, I know that's been in the news. <laughs> it has, yes. I'm so glad you brought that up. I even thought about that today. I was like, you know what? I should ask about that. Yeah, what do you think? Um, again, be, to begin with, the, yes, the Chinese have satellites. The Chinese also have a lot of other information collection methods. Uh, they have, they hack um their uh, business folks collect information um their uh media which is state run collects information so why would you use balloons and i suspect that it's a couple of things one of which is that a balloon does have the ability to hover and persistent collection of information especially over a sensitive right. target can be very very helpful um, simply knowing the routine of the security detail at an ICBM facility or a major radar facility could be useful. Um, don't just think in terms of cameras, think in terms of, again, SIGINT, signals intelligence, ELINT, electronic intelligence. If the radars go, you know, change the frequencies that they broadcast on, which sometimes they do, that would be useful to map. Uh, the same would be true for uh, radios and, and the like. One of the great problems of space systems is that they're predictable. You know when a satellite will be overhead. If you're willing to be dis if you're willing to disrupt your own networks, you can turn things off. It's a lot harder, one, if you don't know it's there. And it's an interesting question how often balloons might have flown overhead. But two, how long are you willing to turn something off? It's one thing to turn off a radar for 10 minutes while the satellite goes flying by. It's something else to turn off for four hours. So I think that there were a number of possible reasons, but I'm one of those is looking very much forward to uh, the uh, hopefully the US government releasing information on the wreckage that they did apparently recover from off yes, of South Carolina. Yes, I hope so too. That'll be very interesting. So we do have a question. A gentleman named Jeff Holland asked the question, did the recent unrest on Chinese COVID restrictions change any of the policies that you described in your talk? So um, I want to take that question and expand it a little bit. So COVID disrupted China's supply chains, not just the supply chains abroad, but internally. So China was doing lockdowns since 2020, and it was never a nationwide lockdown all at once. It was always regions, cities, et cetera. The problem is if you shut down Wuhan, a major port city on the Yangtze, several things happened. As a port city, that means that cargoes can't just be shipped out. If your ship was in port, you were locked down too. Factories that were supplying other parts of China were locked down. Now, interestingly, in some cases, the Chinese locked the workforce into the factory so it could continue production. That gives you a sense of how important it was to keep the economy going. Um, so, lockdown 
throughout the last three years has disrupted China's internal economy, one of the reasons why we think their economic growth has slowed down noticeably. Um, did the protests make a difference? One of the interesting things to keep in mind here is that Chinese Lunar New Year is a 10-day affair. It is the largest human migratory event that occurs on a regular basis. It is three to 400 million people. Wow. It also is an economic powerhouse because uh, you're, it's a combination of Christmas, Thanksgiving, Valentine's, your birthday. Uh, oh, everybody's bye. buying presents and stuff for everybody else. And for millions of Chinese families, it is the one time, literally one time a year, you will see your children, you will see your parents, you will see your grandparents. Because migrant laborers in China, the people who go from the countryside to the cities to work in Adidas factories and, and Volkswagen factories, this is their one time they get to go home. So it got canceled in 2021 because of COVID. Um, no, I'm sorry, 2022 because of COVID. Okay. So this year, 2023, were you going to cancel it again? And I think that Xi Jinping looking at the likely political impact and with the protests took advantage of the moment to say, all right, fine, we're going to end the COVID lockdown, which you'll notice occurred about a month before Chinese Lunar New Year. Um, so one, I think it's important to recognize why this might have occurred. Two, does this affect China's interest in information dominance and the rest? Not really. Uh, if anything, it probably has quadrupled the effort domestically. I didn't talk about the Chinese social credit score system, which again is a form of information. Uh, I think that, and you can actually see some videos of interviews with Chinese who were protesting who said, I know that this is going to hurt me. Okay. I know that I am going to be on a list. <clears throat> In China, if your social credit score falls, you can not only not buy a plane ticket to go abroad, you cannot buy a train or bus ticket to move internally. So I think a lot of these people probably are now finding out, okay, you had your protest. Good luck on finding a job. Good luck on finding an apartment. Good luck on getting medical care. Good luck on getting an Uber. Um, all of these sorts of things. And it will be very interesting to watch over the next two to three years what impact ultimately these protests have had on uh, Chinese protesters. Another thing that we take for granted in our country. Wow, I had not considered those kind of implications that come down on so much of everyday existence. So, all right, so we do have another question. Anonymous attendee asks, do you think war with China is inevitable? Do you think a war is more likely to be fought mostly electronically or in a more traditional sense? I don't believe in anything being inevitable except death and taxes. Um, uh, so is war inevitable? No. Uh, is war possible? Absolutely. Um, take Taiwan as an example. One of the really complex aspects there is that it's a three-way problem. People, you know, Taiwan is not simply an island. Taiwan has its own government, 23 million people on there, and happens to have a corner on advanced microchip manufacturing. So Taiwan's policies affect the United States and affect the PRC. So there's a three-body problem, if you will, with regards to Taiwan. And that makes it very difficult to calculate, makes it very difficult to predict. Um, if a war were to occur, it would be different from most other wars we have seen because there will be much more in the electronic and network realms. Also, there'll be conflict in space. We have not, we, the United States, have not confronted an adversary who was operating in space. The Soviets obviously operated in space, but we didn't go to war with them, fortunately. Uh, but Iraq, Afghanistan, Serbia, none of these countries have space programs. China does. China has an active space program. China actively is researching counter space operations, which, by the way, include cyber and network attack capacities. So in the event of a conflict between the U.S. and the PRC, it will span the electromagnetic spectrum. It will include social media. It will also include space activities. Um, something else to consider very quickly. Moore's law, 
I'm sure everybody here is familiar with that. The number of circuits on a given size wafer doubles roughly every 12, uh, every uh, 24 months. The last major naval war was the Falklands, 1982, 40 years ago. That's 20 iterations of Moore's Law. Moore's Law is geometric. The number of circuits since 1982 is over a million times greater. That means that the Exocets, Super A-10 darts, C darts, and early Mark Harriers of 1982 are a million times less powerful than the current generation of fighters, weapons, etc. Just in terms of passage of time, it's like asking a pilot of a SPAD or a Sopwith Camel. What do you think air warfare is going to be like in the 1950s? Would you have predicted jets? Would you have predicted early iteration air-to-air -air missiles? But that's without microchips. Now we're talking about Moore's Law. Now we're talking about even greater disparities. So I'm not actually sure we can predict what that war is going to look like. Well, let's just hope that uh, we, don't, we don't have to worry about that in the near future. So, uh, Dean, thank you again. We greatly appreciate you giving your presentation today. It was very interesting. And um, we come visit us sometime. Come see our campus and come check out the university. It's great. And I want to remind everybody again to go to the Sirius website for our 24th Annual Security Symposium and register and we look forward to seeing everybody in the future. And again, Dean, thank you so much. Thank you for having and me. And enjoy your commute home. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Have a great night. Take care. Bye-bye.